Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. So glad that you are joining me today. Now, listen, I'm going to try to do two things today in the broadcast. Number one, I'm going to finish up the message on Does God Reject His People? And then I'm going to spend the second half of the broadcast talking about fasting. Should we fast? What is involved in fasting? But let me finish up what we're discussing in Romans chapter 11, okay? Paul asks a very penetrating question. Does God reject his people? He says, no way. And Paul says, I am an example of not being rejected. I am a Hebrew of the tribe of Benjamin, and God has accepted me. And then he uses the illustration of Elijah. He says, you know, Elijah felt rejected. He felt like he was the last man left who refused to bow to Baal. But he wasn't. God had to remind Elijah there were 700 prophets of God who refused to bow a knee to the prophet Baal. They were God's prophets. They were hungered up in a cave, but they were not going to give up. And then there is the nation of Israel itself, how God allows them to go through difficult times, but yet he always invites them back in. And he says, if they are broken off and they come back in, how much more stronger will they be? And then he used the illustration of David and how David reminded his people that sometimes God blesses us with prosperity and that prosperity goes through our heads and that prosperity actually becomes a stumbling block, something to keep us from a genuine relationship with God. And it's not so much that God has rejected us, it's that we have rejected him. We've exchanged his blessings for a relationship with him. And then we finished up the broadcast yesterday talking about the Gentiles. Now, this is fascinating, right? Uh, This is more astounding than you can imagine. What does God do? God says, I'm going to break off a branch, using the analogy of an olive branch. I'm going to break off that branch. Israel's going to get a little envious, but in the process, I'm going to graft in the Gentiles, and then in the midst of this envy, Israel will come back to me. Now, listen, God has his chosen people. The apple of his eye are the Israelites. We are to bless Israel, and because we bless Israel, God blesses us. But God has a special plan for the nation of Israel. Now, I don't comprehend it all, but I believe it because this is what God's word says. They were his chosen people. Genesis chapter 12 with the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham was walking around. He was like a lonely guy out there wandering around through the Ur of the Chaldees. And God says, I'm going to make you descendants so numerous. You're not going to be able to count them. Throughout history, the Israelites have been the most persecuted people on the planet. But yet, in spite of that persecution, they keep bouncing back. Why? Because God has a plan for them. For 400 years in slavery, they thought they were done with, but they weren't. God had a plan. They spent 40 years in the wilderness, and they thought maybe God was done with them, but he wasn't. He got them into the promised land. God always has a plan for his people. As a matter of fact, he goes to extra measures to reach the nation of Israel. One of the fascinating things, as you read the book of Revelation, you discover that God does something special. There's 144,000 Jews who come to Christ during the time of the tribulation. But then there's another special messenger. The Bible says that angels are messengers. They carry message from God to his people, but throughout history of the angels, they don't share the gospel. Now, they shared the coming of Christ, 
They were there at the resurrection of Christ. They did the birth announcement. They were there at his resurrection. They come along and minister to us. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us that we ought to be careful because sometimes we have entertained angels unawares. So angels are definitely involved in our lives. They protect us. They provide for us. They comfort us. Angels are messengers of God. But throughout the New Testament, until we get to the book of Revelation, angels never proclaimed the gospel. Why is that? Because God gave us that responsibility. When Jesus was on the earth, he didn't say, well, the angels are going to go out and share the gospel. He didn't say the angels are going to go out and make disciples. He said, no, you, my followers, go out and make disciples, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. So our marching orders comes from the fact that we are to share the gospel wherever we go. But in the book of Revelation, Christians are off the scene. And so God does something special in Revelation chapter 14. He tells the angels to go share the gospel. And the gospel is received at that juncture in history during the Great Tribulation, primarily by those who are Jews. So we discover that the grafting in of the Gentiles, it is more astounding than we can ever imagine. Now, in order to really understand this, I think you got to look at the analogy of the olive tree. You know, olives are always are a symbol of wealth and fame and and of peace. Uh, You know that the olive tree is referred to as the tree of life? Did you know the olive tree is found in most holy books of all the major religions of the world? Well, what is so special about an olive tree? Well, the root system of the olive tree is so robust that it's capable of actually regenerating itself even when above the ground, the structure of the tree has been destroyed by frost or, or by fire or by disease. Now, olive trees can be really old, 500 years, 1,500 years. And, and somebody said they found an olive tree that's 5,000 years old. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. But olive trees, as they get older, they hollow out and they die many, many times over the course of the life of the tree. The root And the parts of the olive tree that are underground do not die of natural causes. They sprout and they send forth new trees again and again. So the olive tree is famous for growing in very poor soil and extremely rocky environments. So when the Bible talks about the fact that we are grafted in, Gentiles are grafted into the tree, uh, we get in our mind an olive tree. Paul uses this as an analogy, Romans chapter 11. And he says, now if some of the branches were broken off and you, though a wild branch, were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich fruit of the cultivated olive tree. And so God grafts us in because it was not intended that we'd be part of that. Look at verse 19. We're in Romans chapter 11. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. So Paul says, in order for this to happen, God had to create a space for us by breaking off a branch and then grafting us in. Verse 23, Romans 11. And even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in because God has the power to graft them in again. Now, Paul is now talking about the fact of the nation of Israel. Remember, we began our study, Paul asking the question, Has God rejected his people? And Paul says here that they will be re-grafted in. 
by God's power to graft them in. He says, if you were cut off from the native wild vine and against nature were grafted into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? So Paul is setting up the argument saying, listen, if God will regraft somebody as a wild branch, how much more would he want to regraft somebody who is a natural branch? So Paul uses the illustration of Gentiles that even as God reaches the Gentiles, he hasn't cast off the Jews. There's one other exhibit that Paul uses. We've talked about Paul, we've talked about Elijah, we've talked about Israel, we've talked about David and the Gentiles, all people. The offer that is given to me to be part of the family of God is far more undeserved than I can ever imagine. Look what Paul says in these verses. Consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness of God. Kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. If they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, If you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily would these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Now, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this. There's a mystery to this, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them because I will take away their sins. Oh, this is a wonderful passage of scripture. Here, Paul is telling us how God is moving He says, I'm actually going to allow some of my people, the Israelites, the apple of my eye, to experience a hardening so that Gentiles can be added in, so that all people can be added in. And he says, this is actually going to be used to help Israel be saved because Israel is going to see all these Gentiles having a relationship with God, and they're going to want to have that relationship. And he says, the deliverer will come. And he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What a wonderful analogy. So, the picture of an olive tree. The believers are the branches. Israel is the tree, the olive tree. Jesus is the root. Now, Jeremiah talks about this. And I love how he puts this. He says, The Lord used to call you his green olive tree, beautiful to see, full of good fruit. But now he has sent you the fury of your enemies to burn you up and to leave you broken and charred. It is because of the wickedness of Israel and Judah and offering incense to Baal that the Lord Almighty, who planted the tree, has ordered it destroyed. You see, God allows some things to happen to destroy that tree that was planted. But it's going to come up because the root is Jesus, right? The root of David, 
Jesus is that root. God is that root. And it's going to bring back life to the nation of Israel. Well, I told you I'd spend the first half of the broadcast finishing up that message, Has God Rejected His People? Now we're going to spend the second half of the broadcast talking about praying and fasting. You know, Jesus said, when you pray. He didn't say if you pray. He says, when you pray, don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Well, truly, I tell you, they have received their full reward. So if you feel led to fast, and our church is doing a 21-day fast right here before Easter, if you feel led to fast, make sure you don't fast as the hypocrites do. They disfigure their face. They have this look on their faces. People, what's wrong with you? Oh, I know I look terrible. I'm fasting. (laughs) So what did Jesus say? Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. And as a pat on the back, oh, you must be so spiritual. You are fasting. Bless your fuzzy little heart. But Jesus said, Matthew 6, 17, this is given right in the Olivet Discourse in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, but when you fast, pour oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen and your Father who sees what you've done in secret will reward you. Well, let's take this subject of fasting and let's see what the Lord has to say on this subject of fasting. When we think about fasting, it's something that I would encourage you to, from time to time, consider doing a fast. Now, you don't have to do a total elimination of food. There's many ways that you can fast. As we look at fasting, fasting really, in my opinion, reveals what and who is controlling us. But before we get into that, the book of Isaiah is a fascinating book. And in Isaiah 58, there's a whole section that deals with fasting. So as we look at this, Isaiah is talking to his people, and he says to them, Shout it aloud, don't hold it back. Raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. So here God is saying to Isaiah, you got to preach a message. Get that voice of yours geared up, speak it out like a trumpet. Tell my people that their rebellion has caused the descendants of Jacob to fall. Their sins have come up to heaven. And he says, for day after day, they seek me, and they seem eager to know my name, my ways. In other words, they're like the Pharisees who disfigure their faces as they're fasting, and it appears they're doing it to get to know who God is. Day after day, the Israelites are doing it. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and not forsaking the commands of God. That's a process that they're going through that appears to be very noble, and it appears like they've got good intentions, but then they ask for just decisions, and they seem eager for God to come near to them. But Isaiah says, well, why have we fasted? And they're going to say, you have not seen it. We've humbled ourselves. You have not noticed, yet on that day of fasting, you do as you please, and you exploit all your workers. 
Now, Isaiah is following God's orders, right? He's preaching like a trumpet. He's declaring their sins, especially their sins of rebellion. So fasting is not done so that we can change the mind of God, but we fast to change our way of thinking and our way of living. You see, a valuable lesson we learn from this passage, just because we fast doesn't mean we will change. Now, how do we know if our fasts are productive? Well, very simply, we are changed. First, we discover something that was hidden, something that was secret in our lives, and and then we repent, and, and we confess, and we forsake that hidden sin. In the case of Israel, they were fasting, but they were still exploiting their workers. I mean, they were having work done, and they weren't paying for it, or they were taking advantage of those that they had hired. Now, they sincerely wanted God to give them justice and God to be close to them, God to bless them, but they were treating their employees horrifically. They thought their fasting would appease God, but what it really did was aggravate God. They would have been better off not fasting than to fast and not change. You see, they most likely justified their way of treating their employees because that's how everybody else treated their workers. It was something that was really little in their minds, but it was a big issue with God, this injustice. John Piper said this about fasting. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetites for heaven but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality that we drink in every single night. You know, I'm convinced that the dribble of social media is slowing us down spiritually. Why can we spend hours scrolling on our phones, but we can't find a few minutes to be in God's Word? What change is God asking you to make as you decide to fast? Well, here's some things that I'm working on. To be less critical and more encouraging. To be less demanding and more supportive. To be less selfish and more giving. To have less time on Facebook and more FaceTime in the book. Doing this fast is not to gain the approval of men or not even to catch the applause of men. We fast because it reveals what and who controls us. The psalmist is concerned about those who make fun of the things of God. When we fast, we quickly learn that we can also become the object of ridicule. In Psalm 69, David says, I'm so concerned. And maybe you're listening to me and you feel that there's no passion for the things of God. There's no passion for the house of God. And he says, as a result of fasting, now those insults that people are insulting God with have now fallen upon me. When I weep and I fast, they scoff at me. Let me ask you a question. Are you worried about what others think about you? I read about a man who, after 25 years working for the same company, complained to his boss that he felt neglected. He says, I've got this company experience of 25 years. I'm still doing the same job, 
for the same pay. Well, the boss replied, you don't have 25 years of experience. You have the same experience for 25 years. You know, sometimes we need to fast to get us out of the routine, to get us out of the rut. In Isaiah 58, verses 4 and 5, it says, Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for the bowing of one's head like a reed, for the lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? Is this a day that is acceptable to the Lord? Now, Isaiah notices something, and he noticed that they are wrongly motivated in their fasting. You see, fasting doesn't get through to God if it doesn't change my heart and my direction. The people of Judah, they still had a heart of quarreling and strife. I guess they expected their fasting to change others, but not themselves. This kind of fast does not get through to God. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I cherish sin in my heart, God will not hear me. Well, let's pray today that your fasting will not just cover up what's inside, but it will reveal the true nature of your heart. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus does a contrast. He does a contrast between a tax collector and a Pharisee. The Pharisee thought he was superior. He thought he was above the tax collector because he fasted twice a week. Not only did he fast, but he paid tithes of all that he acquired. Now, the problem was not fasting. The problem was not tithing. It was that these two disciplines, these two disciplines caused the Pharisee to be filled with pride. Fasting actually led him to look down with the stain on the tax collector. He even prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like this other man, a swindler, an evildoer, an adulterer. I'm not like this tax collector. If fasting makes you more self-righteous, we've got some work to do. And a New York Times article entitled, The Stories We Tell Ourselves. Todd May notes that we're often telling stories about ourselves, mainly to make ourselves look good. He writes, we tell stories that make us seem adventurous or funny or strong. We tell stories that make our lives seem interesting. And we tell these stories not only to others, but also to ourselves. He says that most of us live in echo chambers that reflect the righteousness of our lives back to us. And in our echo chambers, we justify why we and our group are superior to others. In short, we tell others a very narrow, a very shallow story. You see, followers of Jesus aren't always better people, but we always have a better and a bigger story because our story isn't first and foremost about us. It begins with Jesus. You know, there's a children's Bible called the Jesus Storybook. It has a wonderful way of summarizing the story as Jesus tells his followers. This is how God will rescue 
The whole world, Jesus says, my life will break. God's broken world will mend. My heart will tear apart and your hearts will be healed. I won't be with you long. You're going to be very sad. But God's helper will come and then you'll be filled with a forever happiness that won't ever leave. So don't be afraid. You are my friends and I love you. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It is my hope and my prayer that you will consider doing a fast, maybe a three-day fast, maybe a one-day fast. We're doing a 21-day fast with the purpose of saying, Lord, will you change me? Lord, would you reach the lost? Lord, would you do a mighty work that only you can do because we don't want to walk around in fear because you are our friend. And we are so thankful that the Lord loves us and he loves us unconditionally, even when we mess up. We fast not to show how good we are, but we fast to show how much we are dependent on the things of this world and how we want to be dependent on the things of God. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I so appreciate you joining me today. My prayer is for you today that you will know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the joy of his suffering. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.